So I, I started out last week by asking uh, if all of you felt rested and, and refreshed, and I got a whole lot of no's and not reallys. I, I didn't, didn't really see anybody that was all that rested. And, and you know, we talked about a couple reasons that, that sleep kind of eludes us, like too much screen time, you know, whether it's your TV or, uh, or your tablet, or maybe like we talked about last week, even texting in your sleep. But you know, there's another common sleep depriver, and it's called restless leg syndrome, RLS, right? It's a disorder of part of the nervous system that causes people to have that kind of uncomfortable, uh, itchy pins and needles, kind of creepy crawly sensation that results in this irresistible urge to move your legs to try and relieve it. Right? That ever happened to anybody? Yeah. Right. Have you ever found yourself... Uh, lying awake in the middle of the night and you're suffering you know, from that just that relentless urge to move? Because I know I have. But instead of talking to you today about RLS, I want to talk to you about RPS, which is Restless Prayer Syndrome. Now, you may never have heard of RPS, uh, but the symptoms, are, they're similar to Restless Leg Syndrome, except that the pain is very seldom physical. Uh, now, like... RLS, there is an unpleasant sensation that, uh, that kind of throbs and, and twitches and even creeps its way into us. But with restless prayer syndrome, those unpleasant sensations work their way uh, into our hearts and into the very core of our faith when we focus on our trials and in our grief instead of on the mercy of God. Who's experienced that? Right? You know that feeling of that kind of foreboding unrest that you just can't seem to shake? Uh, that no amount of uh, distractions or entertainments can relieve. Well, you know, the psalmist David knew the ravages of RPS, and we saw some of that last week in our look at Psalm 3. And, you know, he kind of continues that thought cycle in today's text. In fact, some scholarship even suggests that Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are actually a pair, uh, that they're intended to go together. They function as kind of bookends for our day. Uh, psalm 3 is a psalm for the morning, a morning after maybe a very rough night, which is probably why it sounds so angry, if you remember the text. Uh, but Psalm 4 is a psalm for the evening. As I told the kids, it's a, a lullaby of sorts, uh, a soothing hymn to kind of hum along before you go to bed. And so I want us to look at it together as we continue our extended look through the book of Psalms. This is Psalm 4, uh, whose superscription reads, to the choir master with stringed instruments, Psalm of David. And the psalmist writes, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And then if you remember, David inserts that little musical annotation, Selah, which means stop and think about that. Stop and think about that. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Stop and think about that. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. 
You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We can see from the text that in spite of his anxieties, David was, uh, he was able to find sleep in that middle of the night that sometimes keeps us awake. And you know, he had a lot of things to be worried about, didn't he? Because according to Psalm 4 this week and, and Psalm 3 last week, uh, not only were his enemies trying to hurt him and to ruin his reputation, but his so-called friends were trying to convince him that he was praying for and believing in all the wrong things. Right? He says, O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And what I want you to think of here is kind of these, these total contrasts between uh, truth and, and falsehood, between light and darkness, between defeat and victory, uh, glory and shame. Because you see, these men surrounding David were trying to turn David's glory into the reverse. They were trying to turn it into shame. Uh, and before you begin to wonder why you and I should care about that, Let me explain to you exactly what David's glory was because it's that same glory is the hope of every one of us who knows and serves God. Now, if you remember uh, the story of David's life, uh, he'd been the run of the litter in Jesse's family, right? He was the youngest of the boys. He was someone who got all of the dirty jobs. Uh, He was someone who stayed up on the hills alone with his father's sheep for long periods of time. I'm guessing maybe just to avoid all the family drama, right? Now, remember, his father didn't even consider him important enough to come to dinner to meet the prophet Samuel when he came to anoint one of Jesse's children to be the future king of Israel. But, you know, then almost like like out of the blue, God intervened in David's life and raised him up in rapid succession. First, God gave him victory over Goliath. Then he got the hand of the king's daughter in marriage. Uh, And finally, the crown of Israel itself. And if that weren't enough, God blessed him with spiritual gifts too. But you know, if someone had asked David whether he gloried in his vast kingdom, he would have shaken his head. If they'd asked him if he gloried in his military power, he would have denied it. If they'd asked him if he gloried in his treasury full of silver and of gold, he would have said, no way. Well, well then, what what do you glory in, David? We could ask him. But we don't need to because he already told us last week in Psalm 3 when he said, But you, O Lord, are my glory and the lifter of my head. You, O Lord, are my glory. David said, The Lord, the Lord is my glory. That's what, or I guess I should say who, that godless men were trying to turn to shame. It was God. See, they mocked David. They mocked his Lord. And all of us who live godly lives will have to endure attempts to turn our glory into shame too. Remember back how, uh, how Pharaoh had tried to shame Moses and disparage the glory of God in front of the Egyptians when he looked down his nose at Moses and, and Aaron in their humble shepherd's clothes and said, uh, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Remember in Elijah's time when Jezebel and Ahab sent their demonic prophets of pagan gods throughout the land of Israel, pouring out their contempt 
uh, on God and on His people. Then there's a story from the life of Daniel, the story about the time that King Nebuchadnezzar threw three young men into the blazing furnace who refused to deny the glory of God by bowing down before a golden idol and the demands of popular culture. And you know, if you don't think those same kind of things are still going on today, you've got to be living under a rock, right? I mean, today a flood of anti-Christian books and propaganda and media is filling the Western world. Material mocking the God of the Bible and mocking his miracles and his wonders uh, and attempting to defame his glory and to make you and I, his people, feel too ashamed to speak his name or share his message in public. Uh, But you know, not King David. Not King David. No, he, he looks at the mockers of his day and he asks them, how long? How long will this go on? Uh, How long will you keep up your hatred of godliness? How long will you say in the words of Isaiah 5.20 that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark? Uh, He said, you know, you're so sure now about the future, but will you be so confident as you age in those uh, vain idols of greed and power and pleasure that you've been worshiping? He's saying to these godless men, when you, when you lie on your deathbeds and eternity seems so long and death seems so final, will you turn up your nose at God then? He says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And stop what you're doing and think about that. And I was reading a, a story this week, I think is a good example of that. It's a story of a young school teacher named Julie Savage who... I did an interview or article uh, type thing for uh, Evangelical Times. And she says, in in the beginning of her story, she kind of describes her own militant atheism. Uh, And in her own words, she said, To me, Christianity was simply an oppressive system of thought, and the sooner the world was free from its taint, the better. Uh, And she said, uh, To that end, I used my teaching position both subtly and overtly, to undermine Christianity in my students. She said, I sent hostile emails to various Christian groups and online forums just to get a rise out of people. Uh, She said, because I enjoyed the challenge, often boasting to my students about my debate victories. That's what she wrote. But she said, you know what? Uh, One day, someone she said that she had been arguing with had written a reply to her saying he was praying for her. Uh, And he asked her, in a paraphrase of today's text, he wrote, How long, Julie, will you turn God's glory into shame? She said, uh, she just kind of shrugged off the comment like she did all the rest of the ones she received. But after she got that, as the the months went by, an increasing intellectual curiosity kind of began to replace her fierce agnosticism. And she began to, to look around and to question, Are you there, God? Are you there? So she decided to visit a church. But the first three Sundays she drove there, she didn't even leave the car. Just sat in the parking lot and then went home. But the fourth week, she says, uh, she made it in and she sat through a service. And the next Sunday she came back and she kept attending for months, unable to walk away, but all the time looking for ammunition to give the final death blow to the Christian faith and to our belief in Christ. Uh, but she said she, she never quite could do it. 
So she said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll just ignore him. I'll just ignore him and he'll simply go away. And she says on October 30th, 2002, she went to bed early that night, but at one o'clock in the morning, she found herself wide awake. Uh, and this is, this is her remembrance of the evening. I want to read you her, her own words. She writes, that night I went downstairs and just sat there. A sense of nothingness just grew and grew beyond a mere negative emotion, beyond depression. And then suddenly I became aware of the presence of Christ. I didn't see or hear anything, but I knew His reality and His presence. And He was saying, that's enough now. And He was right, it was enough. She continues, during those next moments that followed, I didn't decide to adopt some religious principles or embrace some therapeutic system. I didn't even become all religious. Rather, I entered into a relationship with God the one who had hung on the cross for me so that I might be reconciled to him and know him. And she said, I discovered that he is no delusion. And you know, in today's text, David grieves over people who have not found that same living Lord for themselves. Because you see, for him, religion wasn't simply a debating point for him to win arguments with pagans and with humanists. His heart was breaking. And so should ours. So should ours. It, it should break our hearts when we see people who are unrepentant, when we see people who ignore God's Word. It should break our hearts when we see people who don't realize that time is running out. It should break our hearts when we see people who are self-destructing. Uh, you know, it's the same emotion that the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate in arguably the greatest letter ever written when he breaks into a lament in the middle of the book of Romans and he says in Romans chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You see, Paul mourned for unbelievers. and He almost wished that he could be separated from Christ if it would result in his Jewish brothers and sisters being saved. And Paul's distress was not due to his weak grasp on God's sovereignty and salvation, as we see from the rest of Romans 9. Paul's distress demonstrated just how deeply he understood that truth. He didn't see God's election and people's spiritual blindness as kind of abstract categories without being deeply moved, and neither should we. But we should plead with God for the gift of genuine anguish over unbelievers. Because, you know, it's that distress that moves us into action, spreading the gospel to everyone we meet. And, you know, David does a really good job of kind of pulling those thoughts together when he wrote here in Psalm chapter 4, saying, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. You see, David knows how to hold the balance here between divine authority and human responsibility. And he's answering in this psalm that age-old question, if God is sovereign in salvation, why bother to preach the gospel? And the answer is because election doesn't save in a vacuum. It doesn't function by itself. That's why Paul said it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who would believe. Right? Because not only has God decreed the outcome, He designed the means to get there. 
He designed the means for us to get there by the sacrifice of Christ, communicated through the Holy Spirit in the vehicle of ordinary men and women like us, preaching the word and sharing our testimony every single chance we get. That's why the gospel is like a seed. Right? We, we cast that seed indiscriminately as God commands and it goes out into the hearts and the minds of our hearers. But it's the Holy Spirit's job to germinate that seed. That's why 1 Corinthians says, no one says Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. You see, God has made us the means and the instruments to disseminate the life-giving gospel. But it's also His desire for us to desire to do it. Right? It's also God's desire for us to desire to do it. Just as David did when he wrote, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. Be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. See, David says to his listeners, Think about this. Uh, mull this over in your mind in the quiet watches of the night. Uh, don't get all angry and upset. Just get real. Get real with yourself and with God because here's the real crux of the matter. Here's the, the cosmic struggle that's going on behind the scenes. How can a God be a God of justice and also love sinners? How can God be perfectly fair and perfectly loving? How can God hate sin but love the lost? That's the real question, isn't it? And here's why. Because when we get real quiet and really think about it, we all want God to be fair and just and righteous when He judges the folks who have done bad things to hurt us and our families. But we want Him to be also merciful when we're guilty of hurting someone else. Right? So where's the balance? Where does that happen? And I really want you to think about this because there's only one place where the right sacrifice was ever offered. There's only one place where God's perfect righteousness and His relentless love for us meet and are reconciled. It's only at the cross. It's only at the cross where God's justice was perfectly administered and His mercy publicly displayed. When God took upon Himself the punishment meant for the guilty, for us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, meaning God, hath made him, meaning Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because you see, in that moment on the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, in those awful moments, Jesus was experiencing the very definition of hell in our place. Experiencing the abandonment and the separation from the Father that we deserve as God placed all of the sins of the world on Him. All of the sins of the world, from the fall in the garden, to the murder of Uriah, to David's adultery with Bathsheba, to the atrocities of World War I and World War II, to the violence and the corruption in our government and in our streets, all the way down even to maybe the little white lie that you or I told today before we walked into church. Right? David is saying Jesus took all of those sins and He didn't just take them like He would take hold of a filthy rag and hold it out at arm's length. The Word says that Jesus became them. And because of that, in that moment, having become our sin, the Father turned away the light of His presence from Jesus. R.C. Sproul put it like this. He wrote, 
our God is too holy to look at sin and he could not bear to look at this concentrated, monumental condensation of evil in the most intense display ever experienced on the planet. So he averted his eyes from his son. The light of his countenance was turned off. All blessedness was removed from his son whom he loved. And in its place was the full measure of the divine curse. It's one of the reasons that the Apostles' Creed we say each week reminds us that he descended into hell. And he did it for you and for me for no other reason than that he loved us. In spite of the horrible price it cost him when our perfect, sinless, infinitely just God, according to his own plan, his own design, established the means for guilty human beings to be reconciled with him without one ounce of guilt ever being swept under the rug or one bit of justice unserved or one drop of mercy wasted. And all of that, all of that, Jesus endured for us, facing the darkness of God's wrath so that we could pray for his radiance and say in the words of David, lift up the light of your face, O Lord. Because you see, you know, David looked around him and what did he see? He saw the light of God's face shining in his life day after day, hour after hour. And he realized he really didn't need anything else. He said, you put more joy in my heart than they have when grain and wine abound. He's saying here, you know, God can fill the heart with joy even if the refrigerator is empty. Even if there's no money in the bank. Even if you don't have a job and all your bills are coming due at the same time. You know, he says, even in times of poverty, it's possible for Christians to have their hearts full of joy. The joy of knowing that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. That he's working all things after the counsel of his own will. That he's working all things for our good and that he will never leave us. You know, it's, a, it's the joy of having the truth. It's the joy of having the scriptures. It's the joy of the Lord's Day here together. It's the joy of Christian friends and family. It's the joy of glorifying God and enjoying His presence. It's the joy of hope in death and the joy of all of our sins forgiven and that we have no fear of any future condemnation. It's, it's that more joyful moment than having a full belly and a case full of wine. That's what David has within him, that great joy. Even though he had lost his throne and his home and his fortune and part of his family, he boldly declared that in peace I will both lie down and sleep. Because those don't always go together, do they? A lot of times we lie down and we lay awake. He said, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Make me dwell in peace. And you know, that's how... Uh, our psalm for today ends. Our psalm ends in the original text because of the word order difference with the Hebrew word shalom, commonly translated as peace. And peace is an accurate translation of the term, but shalom also implies more than just a lack of conflict. Shalom carries the idea of wholeness and physical and, and spiritual and mental calmness. And David tells us, in shalom I will lie down and sleep. Because David looked to the Lord. You know, he lay down at the end of another long day running from his enemies. Laying down under that pale moon in the cold desert sand. Uh, and he wasn't afraid. Uh, he, he didn't jump at, at things that went bump in the night. You know, when Absalom's troops hunted him across the wilderness like a wild beast, 
David slept at peace because he knew he had someone to watch over him. And so he could make this vow and say, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And you know, whenever uh, we face things in the future, whatever we face in the years to come, there is one truth that is more unshakable than the rock of Gibraltar. And that is that our Lord and Savior will make us dwell in safety. He's already made up his mind. He's already said he'll ensure our shalom, no matter how great the threats from the outside, no matter how troublesome the health issues on the inside, no matter if one of our dear loved ones dies before us, no matter if this country should be plunged into the most terrible war, whether it's foreign or civil, whatever the future holds, God will ensure that we dwell in the secret place of the Most High and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And when you and I come to that last sleep that we're going to know, that that sleep from which there's no reawakening in this world, we know that we can rest forever in peace and that we can wake up safely in the arms of Jesus because he alone can make us dwell in safety. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you do make us dwell in safety. We thank you that you were willing to come to this earth to live and to die uh, in our place so that we could have access to the Father. And so we ask that you would be with us now as we go back out into the world, uh, that your name would be glorified, that your word and your kingdom would go forward in everything that we say and do, and that we would remember to give you all the honor and praise. Amen.